Hi, this is Matthew Christopher, creator of the Abandoned America book series, website, and the podcast you're listening to. Thanks for listening, and I hope you're enjoying it so far. If you are, and you'd like to support the podcast and help keep it going, there are three things you can do that'll really help out. The first is simple. Just tell your friends and family about it, or leave a positive review on your podcast platform if they support it. Good word of mouth makes a huge difference. Second, if you'd like to hear early episodes and see exclusive essays and photos that aren't on my website yet, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash abandonedamerica. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash abandonedamerica. Third, if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, just drop me a note at admin at abandonedamerica.org. That's A-D-M-I-N at abandonedamerica.org. Every little bit counts, and I've got some really exciting episodes that I think you'll love coming up. Don't forget, you can also visit my website, abandonedamerica.us, for tons of photo galleries and background info on hundreds of abandoned sites, or order my two Abandoned America books from your favorite retailer. Hiya folks, thanks for joining me for another episode of the Abandoned America podcast. I'm your host and the creator of the Abandoned America website and book series, Matthew Christopher. As you know, in season one of the podcast, we looked at the overall rise and fall of certain types of buildings like churches, theaters, resorts, and asylums. In season two, I wanted to keep that up and explore the life, death, and afterlife of one of the most quickly imploding modern American institutions, the shopping mall. Insider estimates that the U.S. has gone from 2,500 malls in the 1980s to about 700, and that number may drop to 150 in the next 10 years. Mall anchors like JCPenney, Sears, Macy's, Neiman Marcus, and Nordstrom are either going bankrupt or drastically reducing locations. Everybody seems to have different ideas about why this is happening, but today I have the privilege of being joined by an expert on the subject. Author and architectural critic Alexandra Lang, who just published the book Meet Me by the Fountain, An Inside History of the Mall, which you can and absolutely should pick up if you have an interest in not just the phenomenon of dead malls, but their amazing and problematic birth and what might lie ahead for them. I really had a lot of fun in our chat and I hope you'll enjoy it too. Let's get to it. Alexandra, I want to thank you so much for being with me here today. One of the things that has been really exciting to me about doing this is reading a book that I'm excited about and then actually getting to talk to the person who wrote it. That's that's kind of like a nerd dream for me. And I really enjoyed your book a lot. I just finished it and it seems like it could be a subject that would be really challenging to write and also could be uh, very dry writing a history of malls, but the book completely is not. I, I thought it was really compelling and you really captured a lot of like the, the fun, magic, excitement, but also some of the issues that are basically inherent to malls themselves. So first of all, thank you so much for being here and congratulations on your book. It's really a lot of fun and I enjoyed it quite a bit. Well, thank you. First of all, that's great to hear. I mean, one of one of the things I was worried about when I was working on the book was somehow writing a history of malls would drain all the fun out of them. And, you know, if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, they were often this mecca. And I wanted to make sure that I recaptured 
some of that spirit and kind of the cultural implications of malls. And it wasn't kind of just about the frame around all of those activities. So it makes me really happy to hear you say that. I thought it was wonderful. And, and having grown up with kind of that culture myself, I mean, that, that's certainly my generation as well. Uh, there, there's a lot to sort of be nostalgic about, but also, I mean, just uh, kind of the, the period of excitement and novelty when they first came out was really something that reading it, I was like, oh my God, I wish I, wish I could have seen these places. I wish I could go back in time and check these out. Um, and I thought it also was interesting to see kind of your thoughts on where things might go from here too. So that's what we're going to talk about today is the overall arc of the mall. And I guess to start off, one of the things that I see a lot is when I post a, a, like a photo of a, an abandoned mall or something like that, they're really polarizing. You have basically two, well, three camps of people. I mean, the, the first camp of people is... I remember that from when I was a kid. I'm so nostalgic about that. It's so sad. Camp two is I hate malls. They should all be torn down. They're an abomination. And camp three is kind of like, you know, they, they should be turned into housing for homeless veterans or, you know, something like that. Uh, basically those, those three things. So, I, I mean, they're really polarizing. They're, they're kind of a love it or hate it thing. And your book has this really complex view, I thought, of their benefits and drawbacks. I mean, it has that kind of wistful nostalgia, but yet, as I mentioned, there's a lot of uh, examination into problematic areas that they had. So I guess, would you be able to tell me a little bit about what led you to take on the project and how you characterize your feelings about malls in general? Sure. Um, yeah, as you were listing off those three camps, I'm thinking, well, gosh, I'm like a little, I'm a little bit in each of the three camps, which is a good way of describing my attitudes towards malls, which is basically ambivalence, sort of admiration and ambivalence, um, because in every area that I investigated in malls, there were a lot of good things, but then also a lot of bad things. And I think when you're trying to write a true history of you know, any kind of architecture in America, that ends up being true. Like you, at this stage um, in the 21st century, it's hard for there not to be kind of negative externalities for almost any like large development structure in our cities. And so to be honest about what people got out of the malls, but also, you know, which people had good experiences in malls, like the good things that they did for suburbs, but also the bad parts of suburbs, like all of that has to be part of the story. And I feel like trying to be honest about all parts of the story is the best platform for what malls might be in the future. Because yeah, if we can't look at them with clear eyes, we're not going to be able to get ourselves out of which something that is, among other things, like a giant environmental problem. Right. And it's funny that you mentioned that because that's a thing that, like you were saying, essentially about having to kind of look at things clear-eyed in terms of their history, but also that, you know, every building is problematic in some way. And it's, uh, you know, kind of obviously a very separate topic, but let's say, for example, asylums, historic asylum buildings, people say, well, that has such a bad history that should be torn down. And it's like, well, if, if you tear down every building that's problematic in some way, you, you don't have any buildings anymore. We live in the plains, which might be nice. So I guess kind of beginning the the history here, let's talk a little bit about Victor Gruen. He's kind of the quote unquote inventor of malls. And what was it that he was trying to address? And how did he hope to achieve it? Victor Gruen is luckily for me, a, like 
a really fun and central figure in the book. He was a massive self-promoter. I mean, he would have called himself the father of malls. I think that's relatively accurate, but he also sold himself as the father of malls to um, the leaders of a lot of cities. And that is kind of one of the reasons like why we know his name today. So Victor Gruen was an Austrian Jewish emigre. He emigrated to New York City in 1938 from Vienna. And he quickly got a job working on the General Motors Futurama at the 1939 World's Fair in New York. So he goes from living in Vienna, this beautiful old city with cafes on every street, a kind of, you know, like coffee and Sasha Tort culture, to living in New York City and working on the Futurama, which was this model designed by the designer Norman Belgetti's of America in 1960. And the America that it showed to all the fair givers was a car dominated culture. There are massive multi-lane highways, there are skyscrapers in the cities, and then there is sprawl. So he, I think, I, I feel like this must have been this kind of like jump cut from like the old world to the new world in his mind. And as a designer, I think he quickly started wrestling with how do you deal with this? How do you deal with the fact that actually, you know, he loved Vienna, but now he's in America and he needs to make a name for himself. So I see the mall as trying to combine these two things that were part of his biography and create a pedestrian culture, a kind of cafe culture in the heart of the American suburb. It's fascinating to me to kind of think of this period where something that we kind of take for granted, where we're at at this point in time, how new it was and this magic that they were creating with it. What was it, in your opinion, that made them so magical? I mean, the descriptions that you have of malls in, in this period of your book, like the sort of 50s and 60s, right? They just seem like wonders upon wonders, you know, <laughs> like every single one they do is outdoing the last one. It's it's doing something that people haven't done before. It's, it's this really this sense of just kind of like a spectacle. And how would you characterize that? Well, I think they were very glamorous. I mean, Gruen and his team, which originally included his first wife, Elsie Crummick, and I think it's just important to credit her, um, were all, you know, Europe, European and American trained modern architects. So they were highly skilled. And malls during the 50s and 60s were really this developing new typology. So some of the best architects in America worked on them, including Kevin Roach and John Dinkaloo, who worked for Aerosarinen, Cesar Pelli, who also worked for Aerosarinen, I.M. Pei. Like some of this work is later kind of suppressed in the architect's biographies. But during this period, working on malls was seen as, you know, kind of one of the most amazing and innovative things to do. And so those early malls had very, like, clean lined modern architecture used very high quality materials and they had a lot of public art the first mall in america first indoor mall in america southdale in edina minnesota which was designed by gruen had two sculptures by harry bertoya who's someone you know collected by all the modern art museums they just had a retrospective of his work at the nasher sculpture center in dallas so you could go to the mall in your town outside of minneapolis and see the very best in modern art and let your kid play on the carousel and sit in this indoor cafe, even if it was the middle of winter. And I, you know, I find that incredibly appealing. I see why people flocked to Southdale, why it was covered as kind of a national, international event, and why other cities might have thought, hey, like we need something like that too. That does sound like something that 
would be really exciting to an area to have this new building that's very cosmopolitan that has like the best art and has been designed by kind of big name designers. How would you say that this fits into American culture as a whole in the early days of the mall? Well, post-war, um, after World War II, the US government and also states invested heavily in highways and housing for veterans. And so that's kind of how we get the new American suburbs, Levittown and other places like that. But when the designers were making the new highways and making the new suburbs, they were thinking about cars and houses and they assumed that people would continue to shop downtown. But they didn't really think about what was like, could every family own two cars so that in those days, dad could drive into work in the morning and mom could also drive downtown to go to the store. They didn't think about how women would feel isolated in the suburbs with their house and their backyard and not having anywhere to go. So I think one of the things that Gruen and others perceived was that the women and children in the suburbs needed somewhere to go. They needed communal space beyond just say like the baseball field after school or something like that. And so there was this gap in what kind of space the government was providing and kind of what kind of experiences the government was providing for. And the malls, which initially were largely funded by big insurance companies, kind of stepped into that gap to provide an alternate version of the main street or downtown shopping areas that people were familiar with. And that idea of the communal space, that's really like a central point in your book. And that's the title, that's you talking <laughs> about them being someplace to go. And you still feel that that's something that's really necessary. And I, I want to come back to that in a bit, but you also mentioned kind of this Disneyland influence. Can you elaborate on what that was? Well, it's, it's interesting. Like we tend to think of the Disney theme parks today as these kind of islands of separate themed entertainment. But Walt Disney was actually really interested in the future of development in America. And he hired a lot of excellent architects. And he had a lot of meetings with both some of the architects and developers of a lot of early malls. Because at one point, Epcot was meant to be a kind of Futurama-like city, like much more of a 24-7 environment and not a theme park environment. And so I think there's a little bit of two-way influence, both of the mall developers on Disney and of Disney on the mall developers, realizing that they could create these miniature oases that were somehow better environment, more advanced design, ultimately including theme park, like literal theme park elements into their malls. So you can see malls as kind of miniature Disneylands Initially, that's just having a carousel so kids can have fun while their mom is shopping. But later in places like the Mall of America, John Jurdy, who designed that, embedded an entire theme park in the middle of the mall. So the, the Disney part becomes more and more obvious, but there's always this back and forth, this idea that you could kind of build a whole city on your own embedded in the larger infrastructure. It's exciting to think about it, just this period where you have all these ideas that are playing off each other and this optimism for the future. I mean, not to be a downer, but I mean, that, that seems a little alien uh, at, the, at the moment, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, before you start to think about like the massive environmental implications of unbridled sprawl, it's also something that creates a lot of opportunities to try out new designs. I mean, that's what was happening in the 1950s and 60s. And that's really what the 1970s and the energy crisis brought 
to a stop. That's part of the reason why people think Jimmy Carter is depressing because he told the truth that, you know, America could not just keep taking over farmland and building new houses indefinitely. So, I mean, yes, there is a kind of optimism. I think that's why people continue to be attracted to TV shows about the 1950s and 60s. But as you already alluded to, something that I try not to look away from in my book is that not everyone got equal access to that optimism and to all that new architecture in the 1950s and 60s. So among other things, we have to see the mall as a white space because they were embedded in these suburbs that in many cases wouldn't allow people of color to buy homes. And that's something that I want to come back to in a minute, because I think that's a, a really important point. But first, Victor regretted his creation <laughs> yes. later in yes. life. And yes. I, I kind of, I meant to ask about that earlier when we were talking mm-hmm. about him, but I think it kind of fits in now. Why did that happen? Why did he come to think that maybe it wasn't such a great idea what he had done? Well, if you look at the original plans for Southdale, the mall itself, which has a pinwheel plan, two department stores, shops, and this central courtyard with the Bertoya sculptures, was actually supposed to be the centerpiece of a much larger plan development in Edina that would have included single family homes like the suburb already had, but also was going to include apartment buildings and a school and medical offices and other kinds of offices so that you could have lived your whole day in Edina in the kind of Southdale district. So he never saw the mall as being divorced from a more mixed use style of development. But there, as in most cases, the people who funded the mall were making enough money off the mall that then they just sold off the rest of the land around it afterward. They were like, you know what, we don't need to get into housing development. We don't need to do this complicated mixed use thing that Victor Gruen tells us will be better because the mall is fine. So I think Gruen always had these European urbanist ideas as part of his holistic mall concept, but that's just not how it shook out. And so by the early 70s, he's pretty dismayed at all of these single purpose malls isolated in their parking lots spreading across America. And that is his legacy, like it definitely is. But he realized that that was not ultimately a healthy way to build cities. And what was it that people were trying to get away from? Obviously, that period, there is the white flight and the shift to the suburbia. And there are some pretty obvious elements of racism in that, but also the idea of sprawl, owning a piece of land, having the suburban house. Why, though, did people want to specifically escape downtown shopping centers? Well, during this period, there's a real push-pull between downtowns and the suburbs. There's definitely this vision of the American dream, and when you're successful, you have a single-family house. So that means you move out of the city. And then you become increasingly divorced, both spatially and economically, from the city because do you really want to drive back in to go shopping? Department store owners saw pretty quickly that they were losing a lot of their customer base to the suburbs, and so they had to build a department store in the suburb and those stores anchored the new malls. So there just becomes, there becomes this distance between the suburban homeowner and the downtown shopping district. And that means that there's less people downtown, there's less money coming into downtown. And 
people began to feel that downtowns were more dirtier, more disorderly. They were in downtown, they had to interact with more different kinds of people and maybe they weren't used to that anymore. And, and now that they had the option of going to these very clean, very white spaces designed just for them, they chose those instead. So there was economic dis disinvestment in the cities which caused there to be more crime, but there was also a perception of crime. And so just the economic base for downtowns started to get stripped away. And that created huge problems for cities where like all of the offices were downtown, but now they didn't have the same level of services that they were used to. Right. And it's interesting too, because that perception of crime is a thing that, and we'll, I, I mean, we'll kind of get to this, I think in a bit, but th that's something that then dooms malls themselves. One thing happens that isn't even related to a mall and all of a sudden it's, it's the bad mall and nobody wants to go there anymore and they want to go to the new one. You talk about though, and, and you mentioned this just a minute ago, that malls are kind of like these walled enclaves and they reinforce structural racism, sexism, and classism. And I wanted to ask you, when you touched on this in the book, how is it that you feel that these things are baked into the way that malls are built and operated? Well, the most obvious way is that most malls are primarily accessed by car. And while now some of them are on light rail systems, historically, even if there was a bus stop at the mall, it was quite far from the entrance. It would have been on the outer of, of the parking lot. And sometimes mall owners even purposely like made the city put the bus stop in an inconvenient location. So that meant that lower income people were less able to access the mall. The suburbs around the, the housing areas around the mall might have had homeowners associations that implicitly or explicitly wouldn't allow the homeowners to sell to people of color. There's this whole like structure around the mall that's basically trying to keep it for middle and upper middle class people, make it as difficult as possible for people of color, lower income people to access. And that means that the people in the mall are more likely in their fellow shoppers to be exposed to people who are just like themselves. It's a whole different story, obviously, for the people working at the mall who are often terribly inconvenienced by not being able to like get to the mall on a bus. So there's this way in which they're kind of designed to present this pretty perfect face to their customer while everything underneath is complicated and inconvenient. And in that sense, you know, it's kind of the Disneyland or Futurama thing, but it's without anybody except white middle to upper class people. And that's the whole idea there. How though is sexism a part of that? Because I mean, you mentioned in a way that these are places that are for women, they're a place where they're getting a foothold in the workplace, but yet that also seems like sexism is a part of how they're made too. Yeah. Well, I think it really goes back to ownership. The ball in its initial conception was a place for women and children during the day but they were also being catered to slash exploited as consumers because the mall was designed to extract their income or their husband's income from them in the kind of like heterosexual setup of families at that time. And while malls provided and the stores in them provided work opportunities for women, they were by and large, not the owners of those stores, not the owners of the department stores, not the managers of the mall or the department stores. So while women had some amount of power within the structure of the mall, they weren't the ones benefiting the most from it. And I think this, this comes up again 
later on, obviously not all malls cater to white people today. And in a lot of cases, an older mall um, in an inner ring suburb would have turned over and started having more of a black clientele initially, and today more of a diverse clientele based on the changing demographics of the suburbs. But even as malls change and cater to non-white people, in general, the ownership of malls is still heavily white. So again, while you can go to the mall and as a young person, as a person of color and find stores that want your business, are you ultimately benefiting from the success of that business? No. And so I guess one of the things that I think is still problematic in the structure of retail in America is how many young people and people of color are consumers, but not owners. Right. And that's, that's really kind of, uh, like you said, it's an interesting question overall and one that needs to be addressed because it's great if you can buy something. It's great if people are trying to, I get, I mean, I say, I use the term great loosely, if people are trying to market things to you and acknowledging you as a consumer, but at the same time, they're kind of curating a thing for you and not really necessarily giving you any choice. It's just telling you, look, this is what I think you'll want and how I think you'll want it and how I want to give it to you. So at the end of the day, you don't really have any control over it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true. But on the other hand, and, and I think this gets back to my earlier point about the ambivalence, I think that malls historically have been a really important space for teenagers to try to figure out who they are both socially and through shopping. And like, I would, I would never deny a kid the opportunity to develop their own personal style. Yes, that's a consumer transaction a lot of the time, but at the best malls, when there are a wide range of shops and they are at multiple price points, that was an opportunity for kids to say, hey, you know, I am in this small Oklahoma town, but I want to be a goth. Hot Topic actually has something for the kid goth. So I think there are shopping experiences that actually help people to recognize themselves and kind of put together their adult self. But on the other hand, we do need to acknowledge that it's a consumer curator relationship and all the options in the world there for you. And sometimes the thing you really want is more expensive than you can actually afford. Well, I'll tell you what, let's take a quick break for a minute. And when okay. we come back, we're going to talk about how cities sort of tried to replicate this and why malls were dirty work for architects. We are back. And one of the things that I thought was funny in reading this was how you talk about there are all these big name architects that are doing these innovative, expansive ideas. And yet it's kind of a shameful thing for them or considered kind of dirty work. It, it reminds me a little bit of Thomas Kincaid and the fact uh -huh. that, you know, <laughs> like fine art people are looking at him and saying, you have your work in malls. You're not an artist. You're just this gross commercial thing. Would you say that it was a similar thing with architects? A little bit. I mean, I can't say that I'm personally a fan of Thomas Kincaid, but... I do think selling better art in malls seems perfectly fine to me. I'm a populist. I believe you should go where the people are. So cutting yourself off from some opportunities to sell things or like show your work to more people just because it's in a mall seems like a terrible snobby idea. But yeah, in the 1950s and 60s, the malls are really seen as this innovative new urban suburban form. And so you get a lot of the most prominent architects in the country working for some very 
good developers with like very forward thinking ideas and designing malls. And I think that example you're probably thinking about is how Frank Gehry designed Santa Monica Place in Santa Monica for the Rouse companies. And this is really his first and only mall. I've seen the historic photos is pretty spectacular. It's best known today because even before he did his famous house, he wrapped the parking garage and chain link and painted a giant super graphic that says Santa Monica Place on the side. And that's just a famous photo in architectural history because he turned the parking garage and kind of this like giant billboard for the mall. So anyway, so Santa Monica Place, totally spectacular, but there was a lot of back and forth with the city over the mall. And at the end of it, Gary was basically like, you know what, if I'm going to be taken seriously as an architect, I don't think I want to do malls anymore. And he didn't do commercial work after that. And I think he was working on Santa Monica Place in the early 1970s. And that's really the point where malls become kind of ubiquitous. Like they change from being an innovative form to a form that everyone feels like they already know. And so you start to get firms that are just churning out malls that are lowest common denominator in terms of design. And I think that's when a lot of the design architects kind of exit the, the room because the mall no longer seems like something fun and new. It seems like something that every suburb has. And that's when the architects who decide to stay in the mall sphere feel like they can't get any respect, even though they're still doing innovative things. Right. You talk about how urban centers want to replicate the success of malls. And you specifically mentioned Faneuil Hall in Boston and how it was kind of dilapidated, nearly abandoned. What was the plan to bring it back and how is it similar and different? from suburban malls? We're in the same period here, like we're in the mid 1970s and the malls have kind of taken over and they have taken away a lot of the shoppers from central cities. So cities start to think, hey, if we make our downtowns more like the mall, all these things are cyclical, these kind of like trends, but if we make our downtown more like the mall, maybe people will come back. But in Boston, Faneuil Hall is a bunch of very old warehouses and wharf buildings right near Boston City Hall, right near the waterfront, right in the center of downtown, but they were really dilapidated, rain, rats, just this kind of like black hole in the middle of Boston downtown. And the architect Ben Thompson and his wife Jane Thompson looked at these buildings and saw not dilapidated structures that you should take photographs of, but the potential for something more. And they saw beauty in these former industrial buildings. And they said, hey, what if we do this thing called adaptive reuse, where we take old architecture and adapt it to a new purpose. And we put a new kind of urban mall in these old warehouse buildings. But our mall is not going to be like one in the suburbs, because it's not going to be, there's not going to be Muzak, they're not going to be perfume sellers. They're not going to be things wrapped in plastic. We're going to take this industrial architecture and build on it and create a quote unquote more authentic environment. So they wanted everything to be built out of natural materials. They wanted food sellers and craftspeople from the Boston area to have little booths and carts. So they create something that could only be in Boston, but it is pedestrianized, it is themed, it is overseen by a central authority. And that creates the model of the festival marketplace 
that the Thompsons and their developer partner, James Rouse, would go on to replicate in other cities, including Manhattan at South Street Seaport and Baltimore at Harbor Place. And obviously, Faneuil Hall has been super successful with that and is a huge attraction of the city. But one of the things that really struck me as I'm reading this is, okay, so the concepts that you're talking about there, those are sort of like a lot of cities are trying to implement them into these pedestrian malls that are becoming increasingly popular as people are like, let's shift away from car culture. But you were sort of pointing out in the book that this isn't the first time that this idea has come up. And in fact, Gruen's the guy who did the first quote unquote pedestrian mall as well, which I was like him again, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And yet you mentioned that there's out of 200 that were built, about 24 that are still functional. So what happened? If we're doing this idea again, why didn't it work before? And what do you think the current iterations of this concept are hopefully going to do that they missed before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you really see, I think throughout the book, there's that there's just like a boom bust cycle on ideas. Malls are a, a consumer form of architecture. And in some ways they have followed the same like up down cycle as fashion trends. They're a trend driven environment. And if malls do not continue to innovate, they tend to die. That is definitely true of the pedestrian mall. As you said, Faneuil Hall kicked off a huge boom in other cities trying to replicate it generally not with the same level of artistry, shall we say, but to pedestrianize some part of their downtown, to bring in sculpture, banners, streetscape improvements, and to try to get people to leave the suburbs, park in a parking garage at the end of the pedestrian mall, and walk around. So yeah, there were over 200 at one time in the U.S., now there are 24. I think the first thing to look at is why those 24 have succeeded. One of them is actually in Santa Monica, pretty near Santa Monica Place. Another really popular one is in Charlottesville, Virginia. There's a a great one in Burlington, Vermont. One thing that has helped them to succeed is being built in places that already had a pedestrian culture, that their pedestrian culture hadn't been completely decimated by suburbanization. Um, In Santa Monica, that's because of the beach and tourism. So like people already love to walk around Santa Monica. So if you give them a space to flow into and sit down and have a drink, they will go there. And that's, I think it's the third street promenade in Santa Monica. In Charlottesville and Burlington, those are college towns. Most college students don't have their own car. And so they're looking for a place to go off campus that they can just walk to and, you know, do some shopping, go out to dinner with their friends, listen to some music. Those pedestrian malls have also been successful. The third type of pedestrian mall that's still successful is the one near and dear to my heart because I live in Brooklyn and Fulton Mall in downtown Brooklyn is still quite a successful pedestrian mall built in the 1970s. And that's having transit access. So people can take the train to your pedestrian mall rather than having to drive to your pedestrian mall. So I think any new pedestrian malls that cities are trying to build have to be connected to one of the above. A beach environment or a high traffic tourism environment, which is also true for Faneuil Hall, a college town, or an existing public transportation system. And it seems like sometimes when they're creating these, they're not necessarily looking at the larger picture. They're just saying, hey, we want this thing here, so we're going to make it happen here, and this is what we want in it. And one of the places that I thought of when I read this chapter was the Old Town Mall in Baltimore, which had multiple boom and bust cycles and was ultimately done in by riots and crime in the area. And how is a pedestrian mall really going to thrive if you're not addressing poverty and social inequality around the area? I mean, that's not something that you can necessarily just plop a mall into the middle of or fix up a mall. 
in this no, case, in the middle I mean, of, yeah. and expect that the area around it is just going to conform. It's it's almost like they expect the area to conform to the needs of the mall versus the mall conforming to the needs of the area. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Like a mall is not, I guess you can use it, you know, like a novelty band-aid, but it's, it's not going to fix anything. Right. You can't build a mall to fix crime. You have to address the underlying issues in your city so that people want to come back and then the mall gives them a central location to go to. And you see this in, I have a section in the book about 16th Street in Denver, which is one of those kind of original order pedestrian malls. It's actually a transit way because there, there are buses that run down it. But over the years, it's become a place where a lot of homeless people and panhandlers congregate. And at different times, the owners of stores and the people who fund the business improvement district have wanted to kind of move those panhandlers along. That doesn't do any good. I mean, that's not how we should treat people anyway, but that doesn't do any good because that's just trying to move the problem elsewhere where your tourists won't see it. And so like the better approach is to say, okay, if this is where people are congregating, can we send out social workers? Can we communicate with people and try to get them housed, trying to just move them off the mall because they're interrupting the look of your center city is not the right approach just morally or right. civically or economically. So getting to the point where malls are starting to sag, I've noticed one thing that people take for granted. It's funny, like you look at the Randall Park Mall in North Randall, Ohio, it's torn down, it's replaced with an Amazon fulfillment center. And everybody's like, oh, well, of course, you know, online retail is what killed the mall. You kind of point out in the book that that's not really the case. I mean, it certainly isn't helping, but you were talking about the fact that a lot of these factors that are leading to malls slumping was around before that. And also that up until perhaps now, online retail hasn't been as big of a part of it. So what are those factors that led to the sag of the mall? Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. There are a lot of stories from like the initial rise of online retail where they're like, oh, the mall is over. And then the mall was not over. Online retail definitely took a chunk out of the mall, but still people still wanted a place to go. And especially for like clothing purchases, they still wanted to be able to try things on and touch them, which remains one of the huge problems with online retail. The pandemic has accelerated the shift to online retail. I mean, you know, people are buying sofas online now that they've never sat on, which I personally think is a terrible idea, but like <laughs> that's how that's where we're at. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's my wife wants to buy them online. I'm like, no, you have to sit on them. You cannot yes, just yes. look at them. <laughs> I agree. I just had this conversation yesterday. So like <laughs> there, there are purchases that people will make online now because of the pandemic that they wouldn't have made before. But there were other factors that were bringing down the mall. One is that the U.S. is just over mauled. If you look at how many malls per capita we have, it's way, way higher than other first world high shopping concentration cultures. Like we just have too many malls and those malls have purposely cannibalized each other. That is the term that people use, like even in the business section. So if a mall is successful in your town and then there's another generation of sprawl, a different mall owner will build a bigger, fancier mall 10 miles further out. And then everyone wants to go to the new mall. And then what happens to the old mall? In your case, this may be the scenario, it becomes an Amazon fulfillment center, which I honestly think is the worst possible land use for an old mall. I don't talk about that that much in the book because it 
it's not interesting. Like that's not gonna generate anything that's really better for your city. So, okay, yeah, yes, that happens, but there are other better things to do with your old mall. So what can the old mall do? They could try to compete on newness. They could revamp themselves. And for many years, that's what they did. But nowadays there are a lot of other things that they can do ranging from trying to become a different kind of retail to trying to densify and actually bring back up some of those original ideas that Gruen had about creating like mixed use communities in the suburbs. It's funny that you mentioned about the cannibalistic aspect because literally my next question <laughs> was saying that malls are this example of cannibalistic consumerism and you have the malls that are coming in deliberately, deliberately to cannibalize the downtown Main Street areas. And then now, of course, you have online retail, but also you have these faux Main Streets that are popping up that are there to essentially cannibalize the malls. If that's a thing, and this is all driven around novelty, and, and you're <laughs> going to have place A, but then people are like, that place is no longer cool. It's no longer novel. I mean, you see this in vacation spots too, where it's like, oh, the plebes are getting in. And then all of a sudden you have to have this new place. Is there really any way for any of these places to achieve longevity? Well, I think to achieve longevity, they have to keep up with the times. And historically, that has meant stocking your mall with the latest best stores. So it's like, yes, we have a Macy's, but now we see competition coming in. Let's try to get a Nordstrom. Sort of always going up and up both in the economics of the stores and in the latest brand. So following the larger retail fashion cycle. So that's one way to do it. And that's what the malls that are cannibalizing are essentially doing. We have a bigger, better, shinier, newer, more up-to-date styled version of the same old thing. But I think there are other options. One of the things that I write about in the book is the rise of ethnocentric malls, which are generally not built from scratch. They're generally built on the bones of an older mall, often the very plain 1960s malls that people aren't really interested in anymore. And they say, oh, the whole demographic of the suburb in which our mall has located has changed. Suddenly, you know, one example I talk about is outside Atlanta. There's a huge population of Latin American people in Atlanta that wasn't there in the 1960s. Maybe they want some place to go that caters specifically to their food needs, dress needs, entertainment needs. That has proved to be a very viable model, sort of not just remaking the white bread American mall model, but saying, okay, what if we made a mall that basically had everything that you can find in a large Mexican town? The one in Atlanta is called Plaza Fiesta, and a friend of mine went there last week and sent me all of these pictures, and like, there's a giant kids' play area. There are stores where you can buy quinceañera dresses. It looks amazing. That like, sounds awesome. Yeah, it sounds awesome. And obviously, like, it's it's not just for Latin Americans. There are sure. plenty of other people who want all those things, who love the food. Food is a big driver for these. And in other cities, there are versions that are Asian American in general or specific countries. Outside Houston, there's a huge Vietnamese American population. So there are malls that are largely Vietnamese American businesses. There are African immigrant communities that have their own malls in Minnesota. All of these things to like, to me, go back to the idea of authenticity that was part of the redevelopment of Faneuil Hall, which was saying, okay, this is the architecture we have. Let's work with it. I think the ethnocentric malls are saying, this is what the suburb are in 2022, let's make a mall that caters to this suburb rather than some abstract idea that we have from the past of what suburban shoppers want. You see this pattern mirrored in gentrification as a whole, where you have something authentic, you have an area that's maybe a little less expensive. So you have people that are artists, for example, 
in a neighborhood. And then you have bars and restaurants that pop up and galleries and things like that to support them. And essentially making a parallel to Faneuil Hall here. And then you have people that come in and say, oh, there's all this cool authentic stuff going on. This is great. And then the, the rents start to go up and the bigger businesses start to go in. The authenticity starts to evaporate. And all of a sudden you've got something that's more tourist attraction than that authentic thing. Hopefully, I would I would hope that that's not an inevitability because I've seen many places where it, it doesn't happen. But it's just funny how, in essence, going back to Faneuil Hall, like that's something that very clearly seems to happen over and over again. I think you mentioned Baltimore's Inner Harbor as kind of a thing where they had planned to have this be a really cool, authentic, local retailer thing, and then basically got gobbled up by larger companies and homogenized a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I want to get to the death spiral you talk about, <laughs> which is that something that like in previous episodes of the podcast, I've talked about in terms of theaters, in terms of churches, this sort of snowball effect that you have. What is what does the death spiral look like with the mall? Well, with the mall, it generally looks like one or both of the department stores closes down. And that's something we haven't talked about. And maybe I should have mentioned earlier when you asked about what causes malls to go downhill. The death of the department store is kind of a parallel story to the death of the mall because many of the malls have department stores as their anchors and were actually originally kind of built around department stores. And while I think that there is a future for malls in some of the various ways we've talked about, I think that the department store is, is actually in a true death spiral. I don't think that's how people want to shop anymore. And unless one particular department store does really interesting, drastic things, like we've gone through a period of consolidation and certain major department stores and some of the high-end ones like Nordstrom and Neiman Marcus are probably going to survive, but with many fewer stores. I think the beginning of the mall death spiral is this big blank building at one end of your mall that used to be the main driver for people who would come to the department store and then wander out into the mall. And now that's gone. Some malls have pivoted and their department stores have become mega churches, trampoline parks, gyms, all sorts of things. And that can work, but it's unlikely that it's going to bring the same level of economic development as the original department stores. First, you get the one or both of the department stores dies. Then the high-end boutiques that were kind of feeding off the richer people shopping at those department stores, they close and are replaced by something cheaper or not replaced at all. Then some of the food court businesses start to close. So you have this sort of sad food court with a few little things hanging on. So then like, is it fun to go to the mall? No, the mall becomes kind of depressing and probably it's not kept up as well. Probably some of the plants start dying. It's not as clean. All of these things feed off of each other. And then you get a dying mall. There's actually a really excellent documentary called Jasper Mall about one mall in the South. And the hero of the documentary is basically the mall manager who's trying to keep it all together. And I found that very moving. And it really goes into both the social life of the mall and then kind of what happens as it dies. Oh, I'd love to see that. That sounds really interesting. As you're talking about this, the anchor store is dying or some of the stores dying in the middle. When I was researching Randall Park Mall, it's the largest mall in the world before Mall of America. So it had sort of a, a hot minute as with that as its <laughs> title. But 
the fact that it was so big is what in fact doomed it because if you can't keep up the tendency in that then you get the spooky mall phenomenon that you're talking about and people don't want to come and see it but yet at the same time it's not really easily modifiable it's not something that let's say that you're doing that faux main street thing you can knock out a block and put something else in if you have to but it's a lot harder to do that with the mall yeah no the bigger malls like two stories more elaborate architecture the escalators like the glamorous ones are in fact often harder to repurpose than your kind of basic eye-shaped one-story mall, which is actually just a series of boxes. And, and a lot of those have been successfully converted to other things. But yeah, the bigger the mall, like the more depressing it becomes and, and the harder it is to reuse. Also, it becomes harder to reuse because you have a more complicated ownership structure and it just right. takes more money it takes more money in to make it into something else. I had wanted to go back to you talking about department stores. Why is it, do you think, that department stores are doomed, but big box stores are what replace them? Because there's kind of a lot of parallels, right? I mean, isn't, you know, a big box store is sort of like a department store. It's just not chopped up. Well, the main answer to that, and I think I just want to point people who are interested in this to a really um, excellent article that was in um, Recode by Jason Del Rey a couple of years ago, which kind of goes into like all of the economic forces against department stores. One of the answers that he talks about that I agree with is income inequality. What they're selling in the big box stores is so much cheaper than uh -huh. what most department stores sell. So when the U.S. had a healthier middle class, like a true middle class, that was able to buy higher quality clothes that you know had a kind of shopping schedule at the department stores that were served with a higher level of service. The department stores had a, a varied and broad clientele, but when people start to be pinched for cash, they still need clothes for their kids that are growing out of their pants. And they, instead of going to a department store where those pants cost $40, will go to Walmart where those pants cost $10. And so as the middle class has been hollowed out in this country, that's why it's the more expensive department stores that are holding on much better than say a Macy's that really went for your kind of middle income shopper. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, that makes sense. Why don't we take a quick break here? And when we come back, we're gonna talk about dead malls, abandoned malls and <laughs> where things go from here. are back. One of the questions that I had wanted to come to earlier is, okay, on one hand, you know, you talk about malls need to address different things. Like you talk about in the early days where somebody can go get their dress hemmed and there's a grocery store and, you know, you come to a mall, not just a shop, but also as like sort of a main street to get all of your needs filled. But then on the other hand, you have these places that are trying to be absolutely everything. Like uh, you mentioned the commons in Indiana, where it's this jack of all trades, master of none. What's the balance? I think for right now, more of a community focus is, is going to help mall owners. Because I think for right now, if we're thinking about coming out of the pandemic, what do people want? I think they want a place to go with their friends to do errands. I don't think they want to be wowed. I think they want to be comforted. So I think all of the more community aspects of the mall is where if I were trying to run one, I would put my money. So make sure families have a place, make sure there are local businesses, especially food businesses represented, lean into the place that you are and making it good for your community. 
so that they want to come back there rather than driving 50 miles to some shiny new thing. I, I don't think we want those shiny kind of antiseptic and impersonal things right now. What you're talking about is, again, authenticity and actually listening to, respecting, and integrating into the community versus the the sort of plan before where, like, for example, you know, a big box store is homogenous. You go to one that's in Arkansas and it's the same one that you're going to go to in Montana. I mean, they've literally hired architects to duplicate the blueprint for the land and put things in roughly the same spot. What you're talking about is more of a model of giving you a thing to see in an area that you can't see somewhere else. And it boggles me that people miss that again and again and again and again. It's such a simple concept, but yet, oh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to this one. I don't want you to spare my feelings. Okay. I would like you to just hit me with whatever you're thinking. It's all good. What do you think of the photography of abandoned malls? How does that play into this phenomenon? Is it helpful? Is it detrimental? Oh, yes. <laughs> I was wondering when we were going to get to this question. In general, I don't really like photography of dead malls. It's not that I don't see the beauty and artistry of dead mall photography. And in fact, like I purchased one of your photographs of the Owings Mills Mall outside of Baltimore for my book as because I thought it was a great example of the kind of beautiful photographs people take of dead malls. Malls often have very symmetrical neoclassical architecture. The, the photo I picked is of this glass conservatory structure in the food court at Owings Mills with these dead palm trees. So, you know, at one time, this was a very glamorous space. Owings Mills was a pretty glamorous mall. And then it goes downhill and no one wants it anymore and it dies. I guess the problem for me is people's emotional reactions to those dead mall photographs. People see them and they see that as a dead end. Like, okay, this mall is over. Once upon a time, it was glamorous and fun. I had lunch in that food court and now it's like a dumpster to dead palm trees and some trash and they right. think okay the mall is over but the thing is the mall is a huge sink of time energy and resources if we're talking about just energy the the money that is in concrete and steel today and it is a huge area in any suburban town it's just a large amount of land so when it dies what you see in that photo you're like okay it's dead you know, buy, it can go away. But that's not actually what happens to a mall. It becomes this big eyesore, this big problem. It can become a center for crime, all of these things. So we actually have to do something with those malls. And I think the photography sort of like lets us off the hook or like let, lets people mentally off the hook where they say like, it's done. It's like the last frame in a film, but like a film doesn't have that kind of materiality. And in fact, even if it's just tearing the whole thing down, which is another huge cost, you have to do something with a dead mall. And I guess I feel like the photography is not a call for creativity, but kind of a dead end. And I can see that. I mean, you talked a little bit about the, the ruin porn thing, which is a, a, a term that I have kind of worked against a lot or feel that I've, I've tried to at least. But th there's this concept that you're kind of wading through the debris of somebody else's tragedy or your own in some cases. And for example, in Detroit, it's, it's not showing the people that are trying to bring neighborhoods back to life or in what you're saying with them all, like it's not necessarily inspiring people to think, oh, well, what can this be? What is the actual problem? It's just kind of like, oh, look at this picture. And I, I mean, I get you on that. I think, I think context is something that's really, really important. And I obviously I can't 
give you any metrics on my own success or failure in this, but I, I mean, that is kind of one of the hopes that I have in both doing this and in the writing component of my work is to look at the overall situation. And in a lot of cases, you know, I, I'm a really big fan of adaptive reuse, but anyway, it's good to hear. I mean, I think that people really should be thinking about how they're consuming images like this and not just looking at them as oh, that's pretty, look at the ruins. They should be a call to action. They should be something that spurs you to really think about what changes needed and what problems led to the situation. How do yeah, you I just, sorry, can I just say one other thing? Like, oh, please do. just because one thing that I, I think is interesting just within the broader category of ruin porn is I think malls are a little bit different than some of the other structures that you and other people photograph in that like when you're photographing a theater or a church or an asylum from the early part of the 20th century, I think people can more easily see the glamour and the grandeur of the architecture than they can in a lot of malls. The picture that I chose of Owings Mills, Owings Mills was very much built in the style of a structure from the late 19th or early 20th century, like a glass house or a conservatory. So it, maybe it's a little more obvious there, but I think people don't necessarily recognize the inherent quality of a mall that sometimes spurs people towards adaptive use. A mall doesn't have the same kind of textural impact as say the warehouses that were used for Faneuil Hall. And so I think that's just another additional hurdle on the road to adaptive reuse or some other kind of conversion for a mall. There's this sense that people have, particularly I think with more recent architecture, and you seem to see it again and again and again, that it's disposable and mm -hmm. everything is kind of worthless until you've thrown enough of it away that it's rare. So, and for example, I mean, brutalism, you know, you see kind of this similar thing where people are like, eh, I don't like brutalism. Like, you know, we'll tear that down. That building's ugly. And I'm not saying I'm the world's biggest fan of brutalism. I'm not saying that mall architecture is my favorite sort of architecture, but you do have examples of it that are really significant and that are really unique. And when they're gone, you can't replicate them. And you, know, you can't save every little T-mall that just has like a small skylight or something over the middle. You're not necessarily going to be able to, I mean, why would you? Why would you need to save something of that? It's it's relatively generic, but like the DiBartolo malls, for example, you can look at them and see and say, oh yeah, that's probably DiBartolo. There's, there's a, a certain style and just like theater, which again, I mean, there's a certain point where people are like, oh, that architecture is passe. We'll tear it down. It's worthless. That moment is passed. But then all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, there's none of them left. Right. No. And that's exactly what I think a lot of the modernist preservation organizations are really working on. Docomomo, which is one of the leading like modern preservation organizations in the U.S. actually made malls their theme this year. And they're trying to get people to kind of do some documentation and appreciation of the malls in whatever region they live in to, to do just what you said. This mall is sort of eh, but like this is a DiBartolo mall. This mall has a pedigree. And even just talking about Edward J. DiBartolo, who is one of the major mall developers of the 1960s and 1970s, talking about him as somebody who is a figure in the history of architecture is important. And in your region, he may have been the most important mall developer. Sure. So just writing these names into the architecture history and getting people to actually think of malls, not just as all one thing, but of having different qualities and different levels of quality is super important. And that's something that I actually think photography can help with because that's where having somebody who has an eye who can show off the cool details. The title of my book is Meet Me by the Fountain because often like the fountain is the 
most recognizable object in the mall. Even if they don't have sculpture by Harry Bertoia, they usually have some kind of pretty fountain. And so even just a project documenting fountains would be really fun and might help people start to distinguish one mall from another. If we're going to save one, this should be the one. And that's my hope. My hope is that we don't have hindsight in the moment. I mean, that's how hindsight works. We don't have the hindsight to look at 50 years down the road and be like, oh man, that thing that we tore down was actually super significant. And we have no more examples of it and we don't have adequate documentation of it. Yeah. I mean, not to, you know, I, I don't want to get onto my own sort of ethos of, of photography because this is your interview, but I mean, just overall, I feel that you're looking at the past of a place and that's important, obviously, and what it was and who made it and what made it significant. But also you're looking at this present moment where a lot of these places are in limbo and imperiled and that really is a, a big part of our time. I mean, with so many different types of buildings, but certainly malls. Pinballing from that to reuse projects and, and what people can do with these places. We already talked a little bit about the ethnocentric marketplaces, but you had also mentioned senior centers. What are some of the reuse projects that you thought were pretty interesting for dead malls? Well, let's see. There are two that I really like. One is, you know, counter to everything I've just been saying, a project where they just scraped and got rid of the mall. And that is in Meriden, Connecticut. And mm -hmm. that was a mall that was built as kind of an urban mall in the mid 1970s. But at that point, the land that was available to build a mall was only poor quality land. And they ended up building it in a, in a bottom in a wetlands near the highway in Meriden, Connecticut. And basically the mall continuously flooded. <laughs> they built it essentially like under the water table. And so there were water problems all throughout the history of the mall. And finally, in the 90s, it was also a dead mall. And they were like, you know what? We shouldn't even have a building here. This is not land that is fit for building. So they scraped the mall and they ended up building a very pretty public park there. They did what's called daylighting the stream. There was a creek that had been the source of all the flooding and they revealed that and that became a centerpiece for a park with a lawn and an amphitheater and a covered space where there's a farmer's market. And then they used some of the higher ground next to the mall to build new mixed income housing that also has some offices and a coffee shop. And there's a plan for another round of housing to be built there as well. So they turned what was this eyesore that was also an environmental problem into something that's actually an asset for the city and is much more public than the original mall. So I think that's a great project. And I think there are a lot of malls like that that are just built places where there shouldn't be a building. Or if there's always a sinkhole in the parking lot after a big rain, it was probably built on a wetland and it probably shouldn't be there. Or they should put permeable pavement in the parking lot. Large amounts of asphalt also you know, create their own environmental problems. So that's one I really like. The other project I often talk about is Austin Community College in Austin, Texas, their Highland mm -hmm. campus is the former Highland Mall, and they have actually reused the department stores and the shops in the mall as classrooms and a big open kind of tech space for their community college. And they're actually building new housing on the parking lot and creating green courtyards between the buildings. And that happens to be on the Austin light rail. So they're creating a 
a dense mixed use community where there used to be a mall. And so that is actually creating an urban area within what had been a suburban environment and also just making a nicer place than was there before. You talk about malls as some place to go. And I mean, capital S, capital T, capital yeah. G. <laughs> and you feel that there's always going to be a need for that. Towards the end, uh, spoilers, I guess, a bit. But towards <laughs> the end, you're talking about with COVID, in particular, how that's something that you're you're sort of realizing the importance of anew and seeing that that's something that people really need. But yet, you know, we still have the rise of online retail. What do you feel the outlook is in the future for malls? Is it something that you think is always going to be there? What forms do you think it's going to take? And what do you think they should do to remain relevant and update for the future? The somewhere to go with the capital letters is actually a quote from a piece that I found and then quote in my book by Ray Bradbury, the science fiction writer, because he was very interested in malls and in fact kind of collaborated with John Dirty, who is a major California mall innovator. I, again, as I was tracing this history, there were certain days that I just had this discovery and the fact that Ray Bradbury was into malls and actually wrote a whole short story about what he thought they should be like was amazing and wonderful to me. Like, I just felt like, oh, okay, like this means I'm on the right track. This is a great topic. So what he was talking about, and I and I agree with this, is just the basic human need for communal space. And there are other things besides malls that can provide that communal space, parks, campuses, plazas in the centers of cities. But I think for a lot of America, malls provided that communal space. And I just, I don't see humanity changing so much that they're not going to need that. Like we aren't going to need that. So I think particularly in places that don't have other public and communal spaces, malls continue to play a really important role. And that's just a basic facet of humanity. I do think the mall analysts agree with this, that there is going to be a huge mall die-off because we are over-malled, because internet shopping is going to take away a lot of the need for driving to get basic things that are easy to order from the drugstore or from Amazon and just have delivered to your house. And bulk services, well, when my babies were little, diapers.com also can eliminate a lot of that boring shopping from your life. So there's going to be a huge mall die-off, but even the most dire predictions still seem to indicate that there will probably be seven to 800 healthy malls in the U.S. And that's still an awful lot of malls. And so I see those as hopefully pivoting to serve the community and consumers that they have now and staying healthy. And it's the other, let's say, 500, 600 properties that are malls that are now dead that are opportunities for the kind of redevelopments that I've been talking about. But again, that has to be tailored to where they are, who would be the shopper, what's the biggest employer in your town, and do they need more space? Could that space be found by adaptively reusing a mall? You know, medical centers have actually been great reusers of malls because hospitals that want to build outpatient centers are like, oh, everyone knows where the mall is, and there's already a parking lot. Why shouldn't we have doctor's offices in these former boutiques? And so that's the kind of thing that provides an afterlife for a mall that may or may not also include some retail or a food court or something like that. But that's where I see things going. I have to say, and I know this is a bunch of of different concepts there, and I'm zeroing in on like a little tiny one, but I wanted to point out, I got such a kick out of that Ray Bradbury thing. I thought that was (laughs) super cool. And, and. 
I thought he had neat ideas. I like the thing about having the third floor be where you have all your spooky, weird stores and teenagers. It was like, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> right. I mean, if you were a kid who liked the arcade, I think it's just kind of expanding out from the idea of the arcade. It was always in the dark corner of the mall. And it felt a little bit sketchy, but it probably wasn't, which is part of the allure of the mall. And it felt like a zone where you would go in and your mom never wanted to come in after you. She would wait outside. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. I spent a <laughs> lot of time in the uh, mall arcades of my youth in the bookstores. Well, first of all, thank you so much for coming in and spending your time to be with me and to talk to the listeners of this show. But again, I mean, I, I just want to point out, I enjoyed your book so much. I thought that having grown up in malls, it was really interesting to see the sort of overall trajectory. And it was really thoughtful. I mean, it wasn't something where you walk away from it and you're like, malls are all bad or malls are all good. There's this myriad of different ways that they've been formed by and affected our culture. And some of those things are good and important and we need to keep. Is there anything that you would like to direct people to in terms of projects or social media websites aside from obviously this fantastic book that you should go out and get, Meet Me by the Fountain? Yeah, a lot of my research was really helped by a number of online sources. Malls are, as we've been discussing, haven't always been treated well by the architecture history community. And so like a lot of the mall history is, is best found online. So there are a couple of websites. I really like mallsofamerica.blogspot.com and also the Mall Hall of Fame, which is also a block blogspot site because they just have a lot of old photos and will take you through the whole history of the mall and different ownership. And there are similar sites for department stores, including the department store museum that I've also found really helpful. So I love those. Something that I talk about in the book that I really had fun exploring was mall wave, which is like the basically when they play 80s music as if you're hearing it in a mall and there's usually a photo of a dead mall in the story. And there is a mall wave composer, I guess you would call him named Cecil Roberts that you can find on YouTube that I really like and is kind of was an innovator in the form. Instagram is actually a great source for accounts that post old photos of mall. It's, I really like mall architecture and flannel kimono. And also there's a site called Luxury Department Store on Instagram that are just fun. And I like see things I've never seen before. I thought the mall wave part was cool too. I had never heard of that actually. So I was like, oh, that, that sounds really great. I have to listen to that. So I guess in wrapping up, is there anything we didn't cover questions for me, anything like that that you have? No, I felt like we covered a lot and you had good questions. So no. All right. I think I'm good. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Like I said, love the book. And again, it's Meet Me by the Fountain. Go out and get your copy now, especially if malls are a part of your life. You'll learn quite a bit about them, and I think you'll really enjoy it. If you're still here, thanks for listening to the episode. And be sure to check out the show notes on my website, abandonedamerica.us, for links to Alexandra's recommendations, to her books, and of course, loads of photo galleries. Just click on the podcast tab and you can pick which episode you'd like. Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the mall is available for order at the bookseller of your choosing. And again, I definitely recommend it. Hope you enjoyed our talk and I'll see you again in two weeks with our next episode.